Greetings fellow captains and welcome back to Rank Amateur. I am not dead, I have merely just been losing the battle against school, so I was very busy this week with cross country. I just ran my second 5k of the week, and um, of course, you know, homework from AP classes, that's always fun. Anyways, um, I am back though, and I was thinking that we should do a series on... Uh, or a series of episodes um, covering HMAS Perth, and uh, because that ship has such an interesting history, it kind of deserves it. And I'm also just not really playing World of Warships that much because the the game is um, slightly on fire right now. It's there's not many good things happening there. So I was just thinking we'd focus on the naval history section of uh, this podcast until uh, World of Warships, you know figures itself out and it returns to something resembling normal. So this will be the prologue uh, to the history of HMAS Perth, so we're going to go over ABDICOM, or the American British Dutch Australian Command. Yes, we are super creative at making names. And I will tell you more about what this was for those of you who maybe don't know, right after we dive into a little bit of World of Warships news. Alright, so the first major thing in World of Warships news is uh, update 10.9. This is going to be German uh, battle cruisers in uh, early access. I've seen some of these things um, in action. Um, I really don't have any experience... Well, I don't have any experience playing them, but I uh, do have... uh, some experience playing against them and i've reviewed their stats and things like that and they seem like they they seem like a good addition to the game they bring something different it's more of a, a aggressive extremely aggressive playstyle that they have uh just just from what i've seen um obviously, obviously you got some uh cool historical ships in there uh too like the um uh the von der Tan, the moltke the deflinger um, yeah, and then some other ones that are kind of interesting, like the, the Mackinson and the Prince Heydrich, um, and I'm probably, uh, butchering those names, sorry, people who live in Germany or can speak German, um, but they bring an interesting, uh, playstyle because they have good armor, but exposing a broadside, especially at close ranges where these things are good, is extremely dangerous, they don't have a normal turtleback, and they also have extremely small hit point pools for their tiers. Although, I think the tier 7 and the tier 5 have actually kind of large hit point pools for their tier. Uh, don't quote me on that. I know there's two tiers where it's like, oh, well, that's kind of like an interesting... You, you say they're low hit points, but actually for the tier, it's not actually all that bad. But then you got, like, the tier 10 has, like, 73,000 hit points, so... Um, uh, they have good secondaries, but they're not the type of secondaries that we're used to in German battleships. Uh, I believe they normally rely on 105s rather than 150 millimeters uh, or millimeter guns. So you're going to need to put IFHE on there, which is going to wreck the fire chance. But they're super accurate, and uh, they do a lot of damage. So there's less fire damage that you're going to get, unlike like the Pommern or the Kurfürst 
or the Bismarck, but you're going to get more penetration damage. So we could, I'd be curious to see how this plans out, or this uh, pans out for damage totals, because um, I know there's some games where majority of my damage comes from, like, actual penetration damage on my secondaries in my Palmer, and some games where I see a lot of damage mainly from fires. And that depends on the type of ship you're shooting at, um, and obviously just RNGs too. Um, although I, I do like these this uh, ship's addition to the game, this is the first line in a while where I feel like it's strong, but it's not like, you know, there, there's n there's a counter to it. Because what happens when this thing tries to brawl and all of a sudden the Shimikaze pops up, like the Schleifen? If it is it brawling something and the Shimikaze gets it from the other side or something, it's done because there's, it can't tank damage with the hit point. Torpedoes don't really care about your armor. Um, and they don't have good torpedo protection. They have good guns. The accuracy is quite good, but they are designed for close and engagements. Um, and they're designed for more of those uh, fast brawls where it's just kill it really quickly. Also, I uh, forgot to mention, these things have torpedoes. Uh, first German torpedoes on anything other than the destroyer that exceeds 10 kilometers in range. The Schleifen, the tier 10, has 13.5 kilometer range torpedoes. And it has uh, Hindenburg tubes on either side, so you're going to have six tubes on either side. So that's quite potent, something you're going to have to watch out for. Hydro, um, all sorts of stuff. Uh, the very strong ships, but like I said, not not unkillable. Um, so the, if the brawl go, is prolonged, let's say they're, they're brawling a Kerr first or a Palmer or something, and they can't kill it quickly, uh, these ships are not going to win that war of attrition. They have to, they, it seems like they're going to rely mostly on dev strikes, which is probably why they were given torpedoes. Um, but I'm, I'd say I'm not, I'm quite happy with those, the arrival of that. I might grind those, I might grind the normal battle, uh, German battleships, but that's kind of like the next line I'm looking at after these uh, British heavy cruisers. Personal challenges, just a new temporary event where you can uh, earn a base XP and then in certain types of ships and you get rewards for that. Yeah, that's that Halloween, I've never played that, I don't like these events where you play different ships that are not historical. Um, it kind of looks like it's, um, looks like, yeah, it's just another one of those polygon things. I, d I didn't really like that. Some people really liked it. Mm, not really me. Uh, brawls, there's new brawls. So you got tier, uh, eight ships in 3v3 format. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's, uh, well, actually that's over now. So you had that, you had the opportunity to participate in that, and right now you can participate in tier 10 ships in a 3v3 format, so you're going to see a ton of Kerfirsts, and I'm sure you're going to see a ton of Schleifens. Uh, you might only see Schleifens. Um, uh, submarines and random battles. This is the biggest thing that they're upset with, uh, or they being the player base, the committed player base, um, and... The, some of their concerns were addressed, especially in co-op battles, and I noticed this because I was grinding for uh, Savan Provincia, which I did get, by the way. I don't know if I said that in the previous episode, but I did get that ship. Um, I think I said that, though. So, um, uh, basically what happened is you kill all the enemy AI, because it's really not hard to do. I think even a monkey could do that. I think... I've lost, like, three battles in co-op, and that was when I first got the game, like, my first day of playing. Uh, that's when I lost my battles. Haven't lost a battle since, because, you know, the AI is absolutely stupid. But anyways, you'd be searching for this last submarine for, like, ten minutes sometimes. I've literally had 
kill the all the enemy ships in like the first three minutes of the battle and then be searching for like 10 or sometimes 15 minutes for this last submarine and then you have just people just leave the battle and go afk because what the heck the submarine's just sitting down at maximum depth doing absolutely nothing and then when its dive capacity runs out it just sails to the other side of the map and does nothing so yeah they they changed that and they adjusted the parameters of uh these submarine AI so that it makes them more aggressive and basically it makes them suicide more that's you know because that's what they want that's what players in co-op want that's what I wanted in co-op because I needed to gather ribbons um, so they changed characteristics of uh, torpedoes there's now 2x2 two two launching capabilities which means that all your torpedoes are now going to hit as if they weren't hitting before uh, German submarines are now uh, they're, they've uh, made them so that they have more damage per torpedo and encourage longer range play. So to ensure that they do stay out of hydro range, so you cannot see them. And I think I think hydro doesn't even pick them up anymore, which makes absolutely no sense because that's what hydro was designed for. <sighs> War gaming, anyways. Um, and American submarines have the torpedo range nerfed just to you know encourage close range combat. Um, I, although the popularity of submarines is really not much, there's some people who play them a lot, and then but most people don't touch them because once you are spotted, you pretty much are guaranteed to die because, um, you know, everybody has airstrike, and if you don't have airstrike, you have depth charges. Uh, so yeah, that's um, that's quite interesting. The problem is, is you you never get spotted in a submarine, so you can't get killed if you can't be seen. Um, I've seen it where destroyers have been in hard turns and hard maneuvering, and they have a damage con that's on cooldown, and they get pinged, and they get nuked by the torpedoes because the torpedoes are literally underwater missiles. They're like underwater sea sparrows. I, I don't get it. What, what about World War II submarines makes you think homing torpedoes? Like, the Germans did, yes, they did experiment with them towards the end of the war, but they were more of just an experimental plaything and not really an effective weapon. And, yeah, the, the whole point of a submarine is you can get close to aim your torpedoes. You don't... That's... Uh, it'd be fine... Tor submarines would be fine if they took away homing torpedoes. That was all they would have to do to make submarines okay. They wouldn't have to deal with balancing depth charges or anything like that. They can just give them some more HP and take away homeling torpedoes, and that would be fine. Submarines would play fine because you could sneak up on the ships and torpedo them still, and it would, you know, allow people to actually counter submarines that aren't sitting 10 kilometers away from them. Because what use are depth charges that drop off the back of your ship when the submarine is 10,000 meters away from you? I, I don't get it. And also there's this... Stupid interface change that they made. So essentially, they removed your fire timer, right? You, you you have to you have to go into settings now and actually click display this. Like they removed it by default for some reason. So now you have people who maybe aren't as into the game, don't realize this, don't know how to change it, or the, just don't care, who have fires burning and are going to instantly damage control them because they don't see that there's oh there's like ten seconds left of my fire. I'm just going to let it burn. But, you know, I guess that doesn't really change all that much because those people are the type of people who would damage con it anyways. So, yeah, it's just more annoying for us. It's not a huge deal. It's just a, one of Wargaming's boneheaded decisions. But, you know, that's, what, number 100 or 1,025 on the list or something like that? And I did whatever.
Although they did earn some points back by um, putting some things into the uh, interface where you can see what skills are activated now, what bonuses you're getting on like secondary buffs and things like that. You can see there's more, um, like they display what buffs you're getting when you press H now, you get your, you know, your ship uh, parameters and things. They display the buffs you're getting if you open that interface. So uh, that's pretty cool. And they made that interface a lot bigger now, so it's like an actual window and everything like that. So I, I think that's cool. That's probably long overdue. It's a nice quality of life improvement. So new additions to the game, you can get containers that can contain premium ships. Um, you can also get a container, or this, like, premium German ships, so Brandenburg, Maximilman, and Weimar. Um, so the, I've, you know, I would get it if it had a, you know, guaranteed chance of dropping one of those ships, but it doesn't, so, um, and I'm not spending any money on the game right now, because I'm really not enjoying it all that much. I um, mean, okay, I'm not, not in, I'm enjoying it, it's just that everything's so intense in my life right now, I really can't deal with, like, you know, a super, uh, like, mental, mentally intense game, I just need something to come home and relax, and World of Warships used to be that, but just at the moment, I'm not craving it, because I've spent so much time grinding, um, uh, the, the Save and Provincia, that's kind of pushed me away from the game, so I'll, I'll be back playing more, but, you know, just for now, I'm gonna go, you know, do some scale modeling or play Apex Legends with some of my friends or something like that. But yeah. Anyway, so the, yeah. Don't have Waymar yet. I will probably get it sometime for review, but it's, you know, whatever. Uh, new flags that they're adding. Uh, new containers. Uh, new camouflages. Um, new Warhammer stuff. And uh, Novoryansk, Marlboro, and uh, Giuseppe Verdi have been added for testing. Oh, that's interesting. I did not hear of that. Um, uh, the Novoryansk is the Julio Cesar. It is. It's so essentially what happened to the Julio Cesar is it was uh, given to uh, the Soviet Union as kind of you know war compensation. Even though the Soviet Union, I don't think really fought the Italians that much. I mean, they kind of did uh, on the. Uh, was it the Eastern Front a little bit, but not not all that much. Anyways, but it was given to them and they've named the Novorinsk or whatever you pronounce that. So we'll basically return to Julio Cesar. Won't be as overpowered because now it's at tier six and that's kind of like a tier six battleship. And I don't really get why the Julio Cesar is that overpowered. Anyways, it's got good armor, it's got good concealment, but doesn't you can't help that doesn't help stupid. <laughs> I've seen some people think, oh my gosh, I have the best ship ever. Charge straight into the middle and get killed in the first two minutes of the battle. That's kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's, uh, we'll, we'll, I think it's a bit overrated, but we'll see. And then the Marlboro, uh, I think, is a battle cruiser. I really, you know, I haven't looked into that, and I have no idea what the Giuseppe Verdi is. It's a tier 9 Italian battleship, and that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, so also all the uh, World War One. Era German ships are now gonna ex uh, they're now gonna have the Kaiserliche Marine uh, flag mounted as their national flag. I did notice this independently. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. They finally fixed that issue because they were flying the um, like the Nazi regime, uh, the Kriegsmarine flag, rather than the Imperial German Navy flag. Uh, obviously, minus the swastika because we don't like swastikas. Um, but now we're having uh, the Kabarask and the Grosokurfus are going to be removed in early 22. Well, or early 2022, they're going to become armory ships. Uh, they're going to be replaced with the Delany and the uh, Prussian, or the it means Prussia. It's 
German spelling of it. Um, but those are uh, going to become armory ships, like I said, and you will still have them if you grind the Grossa Curry first. So, like, if you grind the Grossa Curry first and it becomes an armory ship, you'll you'll have to regrind to the Prussia, but you'll still keep the Grossa Curry first. So you've you've given yourself uh, however many two hundred two hundred forty thousand coal ship or whatever um you yeah so you'll be able to get that and you'll also be able to sell it for a profit if you really want to sell it um but yeah so good idea if you're close to the grosser curfus just to hurry up your grind and well not even hurry up your grind but just you know get up there to tier 10 to claim your well now going to be a pretty special ship even though it's like a premium ship um some other upgrades that they're making, um, just kind of changes uh, to the game mechanics. Uh, there's going to be some changes to ship armor calculations to be more accurate. And they're saying that the reason why you get like ricochets uh, a lot on sh uh, sections of ships that you should penetrate in any circumstance is that you're actually hitting like a deck element on the ship, like decorations. And for whatever reason, it's... Um, doesn't like it it's a guaranteed ricochet when it hits it sometimes i don't i don't know exactly what's going on there with their uh game logic but they're saying they're fixing that so you can penetrate it through there and they'll just not be uh hitboxes i guess you'll just go straight through them as if they were not there and so that will uh, allow more reliable ship penetration um and sometimes there's uh, situations where shells will go through a ship's superstructure deal penetration damage and then deal over penetration damage as well so they're saying they're fixing that and it's going to be more uniform. Uh, and there's also going to be uh, three more ships that are going to be available for community tokens. The Isuzuchi, the Exeter, and the Leningrad. So that should be interesting. Um, what, uh, so, yeah. Uh, released a few premium ships in the time. as They just keep stamping them out. You got the Brandenburg, which is kind of like an Odin, except it's a battlecruiser, from what I've heard. Uh, I really haven't not super interested in that shit myself i already got to tier 8 premium and uh yeah so it's yeah it seems basically like an odin uh it's got 305 millimeter guns but it does have 12 of them and i believe it also has a decent amount of hit points just not um you know like the anemic value that the odin has so you could say the odin was a bit of a press predecessor to that um you also have, oh, geez, where did it go? You have the Rochester, yes. The Rochester came out. And boy, do I have a story for you here. So the Rochester is a tier 8, um, well, it's it's a post-war, um, it's a post-war Baltimore class. It's really an Oregon City class, but it's a subclass of the Baltimore class heavy cruisers. And, um, yeah, so... It's got a smoke. It's basically an anchorage. It's got a smokescreen. Uh, good, the good. Uh, or basically, it's a Baltimore with a smokescreen and less hit points and just less less everything for the smokescreen. It's kind of like the anchorage, except you can buy it. So it's going to be reasonably strong. It's maybe popular. I don't know. But once the smokescreen expires, you're kind of screwed. So I don't know. I haven't seen a whole lot of them. Don't think it's really going to be that popular ship, judging by how popular the anchorage was. But you never know. Um, but I was scrolling the World of Warships Reddit page the other day, and I saw a post that I haven't seen in months, and that's a post from Little White Mouse. And then it said I did a thing and had a picture of the, uh, the Rochester, and I was like, "Did you did you buy the Rochester? Did you rejoin the community contributor program and get the Rochester to review or like what was? No. So what she did 
what she did was she had she has a Patreon page, obviously. So she spent money from her Patreon page and went and bought something from Wargaming, an expensive Tier 8 premium ship to review on her, her forums page. And I was I was a bit shocked by that because this is the community contributor, guys. Remember that, that well now ex community contributor that led the whole charge on the mass community contributor exodus, right? It was like like encouraging people to leave and everything like that. Don't spend a dime on World of Warships again. This is a horrible company. Don't don't support the war gaming or anything like that. Just a ban- don't play the game anymore and everything. So a bunch of people followed her because like what happened to her was not super great and. People can understand her frustration and everything, because she was treated pretty badly by um, wargaming. I have some, some my own opinions on that. I don't think I think it's a bit of an overreaction about the from the community, but reaction's a reaction. Um, and so you know, they decided that they were gonna have this protest, and so a bunch of community contributors left. You know, like Mighty Jingles, obviously Flamu had been kicked out before. Uh, I Chase, Pointy Hair Jedi people who relied on the community contributor program for their uh, subscriber base. I mean, not really Mighty Jingles, but like the other people that, you know, getting these these things in early access and reviewing them and not having to pay for them and to, to review them. And that's these smaller YouTubers who are just starting out and just had their community contributor status earned. Uh, they left it because they were standing in solidarity with with uh, Little White Mouse and people pledged that they weren't going to spend money on it. And this was a whole deal right over that Yukon skin. Well, we can call it a scandal kind of. Um, and so that was, you know, a very powerful movement. Got a bit of reaction from Wargaming, although not as much as they were hoping. Um, yeah, and then now the leader of that, the person who who made people uh, quit their the program that was supporting their channel out of stand, respect and solidarity for her, is now supporting the very company that she swore never to support again. I don't know if I've seen something more hypocritical than that in a long time. Like, that's blatantly hypocritical there. Why would you do that? You pledged not to do that. And you've ruin some people's YouTube channels over that, over that protest. And you completely just disregarded what they've done for you to support you in your, you know, endeavors and went and reversed what you bought or what what you did anyways and bought something. You didn't, you didn't even, you know, get it from Wargaming for free. You bought it. You bought it. You spent 50 bucks on a ship. Like, what the heck? I'm, uh, I'm... Wow, if I was, like, I don't know, pointy-haired Jedi or something, I would be furious with this. And maybe he was. Maybe he released a statement. I really haven't checked. But I feel like that was that's stupid. I've lost a lot of the respect I've had for, for Little White Mouse because she doesn't she didn't keep her integrity. She promised to do something and then just straight up didn't do it. Like, you, you always come after Wargaming for not holding promises and not sticking to their word. But what did you just do? What, how are you any better than them? Like... You literally did the same thing that they did. And now people who, you know, offers have expired on the deals that they were really going to get, but they wanted to, you know, support you and not buy that that thing that they wanted at a better price, the offers have closed, and now you just are like, oh, well, I'm buying something anyway, so, you know, you guys can buy something too. Well, that's... <laughs> what the heck? I don't... I don't... I don't get it. I don't. I saw that, and I was I was quite honestly shocked, and, you know... 
that I don't know. I I was I I was both laughing and really mad at that at the same time. So whatever. Um last bit of news in the premium shop or in well in the world of warships in general. Gear Sarge hybrid ship in World of Warships now in the premium shop. Yep. So take an FDR, take a Montana and take a North Carolina and combine them and you have got you got Gear Sarge. So if this isn't the most overpowered ship that I've seen in a while, um, you know, oh, maybe it isn't overpowered. Maybe they'll nerf it into the ground. It'll it'll be really popular uh, for two weeks and just totally ruin the game. They'll nerf it and then not give anybody compensation. And then, um, yeah. So I I I, I don't <laughs> I don't get it. You know. Gears Arge is going to be one of those ships that's going to frustrate people, and it's going to be on World of Warships Reddit for a few weeks about like how overpowered the ship is and everything. So, I, I don't get it. It's also really ugly. <laughs> I mean, like it's like a flight tech on top of a battleship superstructure with like two turrets, well, six North Carolina guns on either end of it, and it's just massive. And it, you know, I mean, I guess it's a torpedo bait. You know, if you're looking to earn torpedo kills. This would be the ship to do it on. Um, yeah, so you got uh, F-8F Bearcat fighters. You got five of them with the Tiny Tim rockets. I think there's three per per plane. Uh, good anti-aircraft defenses are, quote, good anti-aircraft defenses and North Carolina guns. So, yeah, that seems like it packs a punch. I mean, maybe it's really trash. I don't know. Um, but it seems like it's really overpowered. I remember it in testing as being really overpowered, and I remember seeing it as doing some pretty interesting things in some videos, but we'll see if that's like the Gordon Liu uh, conspiracy theory, or not conspiracy theory, but like, you know, the first impressions of it as being, oh, this is blatantly overpowered, went and like nuked a Montana under like perfectly ideal circumstances that never happen in battle, or, you know, if it actually is overpowered, but... So that's it for World of Warships news. Let's go back over to the uh, Abdicom section here. So what was Abdicom? Well, Abdicom was basically the result of an allied realization that there was a lot of people who really didn't like the Japanese and had a problem with them coming for their oil and other resources in their colonial um, holdings in the uh, East Indies, or what was called the East Indies at the time now, basically Indonesia, uh, Singapore, East Timor, uh, Malaysia, a bit of Thailand... And also, um, what is it, uh, Myanmar now? But it, it used to be called Burma at the time. Um, so they basically realized that, hey, we can like work together and you know defend our collective interests. And we'll work together with a solid command structure and we'll repel the Japanese triumphantly. And so the Japanese were ultimately repelled from the archipelago. They never really even entered it. And they ended up having a few holdings in the Pacific, but not that many. And they were firmly slapped into Japan by the end of 1942. And the atomic bomb was never necessary. And everyone lived happily ever after in a stable world order. And no, that is actually not how it went. They got their butts kicked. So yes, the Japanese by this time... Um, well, actually, so backing up, Abdicom was kind of first suggested in early 1941 before the U.S. was really even in the war. And um, it was suggested that 
since the Dutch really wanted to defend like the last piece of their homeland that they that they considered it part of their homeland um, that was not occupied by the Germans, they were really eager to defend it, and uh, so were the British because it was uh, India and Burma were really profitable, and the same with Singapore, just controlling trade through there, and um, obviously Australia was like you know. Uh, pretty happy to be able to defend itself or would like to be able to defend like itself and then the u.s was uh, uh had a desire to defend the philippines so um what happened was is everyone kind of wanted to defend their own thing and so they didn't really agree in much until the japanese attacked uh pearl harbor and then on december 7th and on december 10th um, they uh, sank Prince, HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Repulse uh, at, at sea. So that was the first battleship that was actually at sea um, when it was sunk by aircraft and only by aircraft, not by surface action. Remember, there had been battleships that had been sunk prior to this, but not at sea. They were always in port. But this, this showed that um, it, aircraft were capable of single-handedly slapping a battleship out of existence. Um, with torpedoes and bombs and things like that. So, yeah, everyone was kind of mad about that. Um, the U.S. was pretty mad, too, and they were also mad that the Philippines fell pretty much instantly after that. And this uh, forced the U.S. Asiatic Fleet, which contained uh, USS Houston, USS Marblehead, and uh, USS Boise was also heading in the area, and a few World War One era, destroy uh, era destroyers. So, overall, pretty outdated. The only modern one was um, USS Boise, which wasn't even really in the fight and never really would come to the fight. It would run aground. I forget where it would run aground. But um, and it would have to return to Australia for repairs, and once those repairs are done, the uh, Netherlands East Indies had fallen by then. So, uh, Abdicom really materialized in early uh, 1941 or 1942, excuse me, early 1942. Like, and it was pretty much official, and um, like everybody had been put in their place by like February 1942, and this is when stuff really started to compound. So. Um, the ultimate goal, the agreed behind goal, was to um, was to hold the uh, Burma or the um, Malaya line or the like Malaya defense line that they have. So if you picture uh, a line drawn from what's now Myanmar or, uh, and Thailand through like Sumatra or southern the southern islands of uh, what is now the um, islands of Indonesia and Malaysia and through Java and basically straight uh, east to Australia. That's what this uh, Malaya defense line was. Uh, it was known to the British as the Malaya barrier, and the Dutch called it the East Indies barrier, and I don't know what the Americans called it. They called it a lot of different things. So they had the first thing was to settle was who was in charge, and that was kind of... It, it, went back and forth and they decided in this really really complicated command structure rather than just having a few people in charge of everything they had like 20 commanders in charge of these meager forces that are in this area i mean they have i think like half a million soldiers maybe like on the high side if you count everyone who's over there not just people who are on these islands um so uh, yeah, so there's not that many people compared to, like, the entire Japanese Navy that's coming over here, and most of the Japanese Army that's not in China is coming over here. Um, so this is setting up to be, like, the first big showdown of the Pacific that's not in China. Because the war in China, the, the second Sino-Japanese war, 
doesn't really count as part of World War II, or at least what we're talking about right now. It had been going on for years prior and would only stop with the Japanese defeat uh, in World War II. So it was kind of, it was a bit of a sideshow to World War II and had been going on for a while. So um, anyways, so they're, they're sending a lot of forces down here, and this is a big first showdown. So who's in charge of um, all of Abdicom? Well, that would be Sir Archibald... Sir Archibald Wavell, or General Sir Archibald Wavell, uh, he was a senior officer of the British Army, and he was the one who was placed in charge of all of Abdicom. So, technically, technically, he did have authority to issue orders to anyone of any of the participating nations. And by the way, um, since these were colonial powers, they did have like soldiers from uh, Indonesia, they had soldiers from China, they had soldiers from India, Burma, Thailand, uh, present-day Malaysia, Singapore, Aust- or Australia was part of the thing, uh, New Guinea, Timor, like all these different places um, that were participating in this. But the, the main four, so he could issue orders to any commander in the main four here. And that never really happened in practice because turns out people don't like being controlled by people who are from different countries for some reason. This is a fairly new thing. I don't think it's been happening for literally thousands of years. But, um, yeah, so people, the commanders basically kind of did what they wanted to. It wasn't very organized, but they did have a command structure, a, a, a theoretical command structure. But the problem was the link between the command structure and the commanders who were actually in the battlefield was not very it was not very tight as it would be in a, a normal nation like if you like like over in uh, uh Europe where the link between like well Hitler and his his top commanders and his commanders who were in the field was pretty tight it was pretty organized that was not so here and that's par- partially because um the commanders were so far away from the battlefield cuz the situation was so volatile um like the whole this whole thing was over in a month so it was it was a matter of like in a day they could have overrun the command post and so I mean, these guys did not want to be near the they're they're being near the gunfights too below them you know um, anyways so this would prove to be one of Abda's uh, Achilles heels is their just haphazard coordination was no match for the rigorously disciplined and coordinated Japanese military like the Japanese military you know, people always are. Um, you know, talking about how horrible they were to people that captured and to uh, civilians and things like that, and how they would just beat them. And, the, you know, like, they, they were just, in general, pretty terrible people, uh, a lot of them. Now there was, you'll, if you read, like, a book like Ship of Ghosts or something like that, in the prisoner section when they're, um, after they've been taken prisoner in their battle, you'll see that there are some, like, nice people in the Japanese military. I'm not trying to say that there aren't... Um, you know, obviously nice people. There's people who, uh, like, had their commanders stop meetings or something like that because they didn't believe it was, like, you know, deserved and things like that at the risk of them getting a beating themselves. But what I'm saying is what they gave is often what they received by their commanders. So, like, if uh, there was one example where a Japanese uh, soldier, uh, mis- like, basically he drove his truck into the prison compound and... Um, these prisoners were so, like, adept to being uh, mechanics and things like that, they, they took apart his truck as he was, like, looking around for prisoners to help him unload it, and they hit it. The, the remaining parts, they hit it, and then so he didn't know where his truck went, and he had to go tell his commander that, and he got severely beaten by his commander, which would obviously never happen today in the military, but that's what happened. So that, the impression that their commanders made on them transferred. Anyways, but this this discipline and the sphere discipline made the Japanese a, a very elite and effective fighting force for their 
for their size. And even though ABDA and Japan were sort of comparable, they were on a similar level, although they were ABDA was still significantly disadvantaged, even in like manpower and especially in sea power um, and air power. So yeah, pretty much they were disadvantaged in almost every category. Um, they still did have a chance if they were more coordinated. There's There's been high, or more upsets in history, like the American Revolution and things like that. Um, so anyways, uh, land forces would prove not to be super large factors in um uh this this whole abda fight uh, due to the fact it was fought on islands and it didn't take a whole lot to, to capture an island uh, it, this would be a primarily air and naval naval skirmish and those of you who maybe know a lot about abda probably probably still don't know a lot about their air forces and that's because the air forces were, were negligible at best um and that's because um japan had air superiority basically over this archipelago they have been decimating uh allied air forces and airfields for very um since like the attack on pearl harbor uh they've been launching carrier strikes and and yeah it was awful and the uss langley actually i've i've done a um a episode on uss Langley was bringing loads and loads of p-40 warhawks to resupply resupply the um Dutch East Indies, but unfortunately it was sunk with the Warhawks on it, so it never got there. And then some other transports brought even more Warhawks here, and they were never. The communication was so terrible that they were never actually unboxed from their crates. So when they really needed them, when there was an attack on Java, everyone's like, "Where are the Warhawks?" And they're like, "Oh, they're still in their crates at the harbor. They haven't even been brought down to the airfield yet." So that's how bad the communication was here. That's why air forces did not really play a huge role. Now, the people who were in the air forces did fight very valiantly, and they had further size. There was only, like, something like 40 planes or something like that compared to, like, the Japanese hundreds that, you know, it was... There was no chance they had, but they... They had a pretty decent kill ratio, but they just couldn't replace their losses. They they couldn't lose a war of attrition, at the, at the, at least at this point in the war. So in Japan knew that. They just kept throwing more people at the Dutch East Indies, and they couldn't kill them fast enough, basically. So that leaves the naval contingent of Abdicom to, uh, you know, contend with basically all of the uh, Japanese forces. And this is why it appears in our Naval History Podcast, because it was very much a naval battle. Um, they actually did fairly well, and their Achilles heel would... Be- proved to be two things uh poor communication again wow that surfaced again there's a surprise and their lack of air support their lack of air support and fighter cover proved to be basically a lethal um flaw because the japanese were even scout planes were able to trail these things above their anti-aircraft uh gunfire ceilings and just drop like little phosphorus flares in into the sea behind them just literally mark where they're going so, like, Japanese scouting planes could then, you know, come back from these individual ships, uh, the, like the heavy cruiser Nachi and, oh, jeez, I forget the other one. But um, uh, you, and you could see exactly where the ships had been from, like, however many thousands of feet in the air they were. And then you could trace back, trace their steps and kind of predict their course. It, it wasn't that difficult for the Japanese to, to figure out what they were going to do. So... Um, the ABDA uh, command, um, naval contingent, also called ABDA float, uh, was initially commanded by, uh, Admiral Thomas C. Hart, but he was, um, 
uh, well, he was kind of like relieved of his duty and or um, like retired basically because he was actually very old at this time. He's like, I think I want to say like seventies maybe. I don't know, like sixties, seventies. Like he he basically kind of retired, basically gave up his command uh, to Admiral. And I'm gonna try to pronounce this really hard, Conrad Hellfreak. And um, yeah, he. He did the best he could, but the problem was is he wasn't exactly, like, aggressive. He didn't push his advantages, because there was a time um, when the Japanese were noticeably out of position in just before the battle, of the first battle of Java Sea, um, where the um, the Abda float could have capitalized on their being out of position and their, like, one chance of being disorganized, and uh, both Admiral Conrad and Helfrich and... Um, was it uh, his uh, Admiral Carol Durman could have um, capitalized on this and pushed it their advantage to attack the Japanese when they're most vulnerable and confused, and they didn't. They retreated, and that allowed the uh, Japanese to regroup and then come at them, and eventually they lost the Battle of the Java Sea. And some of you might be like, okay, so how does this relate to the HMAS Perth? Well, first of all, she was uh, like the primary... Uh, Australian ship that was in this battle. And um, so you have tons of ships that are actually involved in Abdicom, technically. Um, so for the Americans, you have USS Houston, which is a um, heavy cruiser of the Northampton class. You have the USS Marblehead, which is of the Omaha class, USS Boise, Brooklyn class, USS uh, Aden, or yeah, Alden, which is a four piper, USS Barker. John D. Edwards, Whipple, Parrot, Edstall, Bomber, uh, Bulmer, Stewart, Pope, Perry, P uh, Pillsbury, uh, John D. Ford, Paul Jones, uh, Asheville, and yeah, so those are all, um, uh, whatchamacallit, those, those are all um, four Piper destroyers of the Clemson and, um, Ah, jeez, Wix class. Why am I why am I struggling with that? Of the the Clemson and the Wix class from World War One. So these are incredibly outdated or well, they're outdated destroyers. They're not incredibly outdated, they're still usable, but they're nothing like the what the Japanese have. And they still are led to some success, or actually some pretty good successes against um the Japanese. Then you have the gunboat uh Asheville and Tulsa and um and then you have the seaplane tender USS Holland, uh, USS Canopus, uh, USS Otis, USS Langley is a used to be an aircraft carrier. It's now a seaplane tender. Uh, USS uh, Childs is a fast, um, another destroyer is a fast minesweeper. USS Huron, fast minesweeper, a converted yacht, and USS Pecos, which was a replenishment oiler. And then for the Dutch. You have the HNLMS De Reuter, Trump, Java, De Seven Provincien, which is a um, coastal defense ship that they had. And you might recognize the name De Seven Provincien or Provincia. Uh, yes, that was the name that was given to a ship that's currently being built, but they didn't take it off a ship that was already in service with the Navy. You have USS Evertston, the Cornier, the Piatine, the Van Ghent, the Bankert, the Vernes, the De Witt, De Witt. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing these right. I don't have time to look up all the pronunciation. For the British, you have the Prince of Wales, the Replos, the Exeter, the Dragon, the Donna, Durban, Emerald, Electra, Encounter, Expre or Express, um, Isis? Or, yeah, HMS Isis. That's interesting. I guess uh, how, how times have changed in uh, naming conventions. Um, uh, HMS Jupiter, HMS Scout, HMS Stronghold, HMS uh, Tendos, 
and HMS Thalent or Tanant or yeah, okay. Jesus, all this pronunciation. I'm just terrible with it. <laughs> then for the Australians, you have HMS, HMAS Perth, Hobart, Adelaide, Vampire, and Vendetta. Um, so these are all the ships that the Abdacom has. They have only two battleships, or one battleship and one battle cruiser, both of which were sunk uh, by the time that Abdacom uh, was formed. And um, so they're just left with some cruisers. They have two heavy cruisers, but the Japanese also have two heavy cruisers. They have a ton of destroyers. And they have one, two, three, uh, four, five, and six, seven. Yeah, seven light cruisers and a whole host of destroyers and support ships. So, like, um, or eight, eight light cruisers because you have HMS, HMAS Adelaide. So, yeah, you have a lot of ships. So, how did what happened with like wh- why weren't these ships used correctly? Well, the whole problem was communication again. So, all these navies at this time had different signals and uh, orders and tr- like traditions and um, you know, like pre battle things that they would do that confused each other actually. So you get orders that come through from the Dutch that make perfect sense to other Dutch ships, but then the Americans are like, okay, well, what are you saying? Because this isn't Dutch. We don't understand Dutch. So then they'd have to, like, figure out translations and things like that, and this was not a time where English was a dominant language, so you, you, not everyone knew English, and it was it was just a mess. And so you get things that happen, like um, when HMS, uh, HMS uh, Exeter was hit with a torpedo. She started listing out of line because she didn't want to get run over by the ships behind her. But all the ships behind her thought that was an order to, you know, follow her. So they all started falling out of line and slowing down right in front of the Japanese as they're being shot at because they think they're doing the right thing, but they're actually, like, you know, following a damaged ship. So confusion ensued, and then HMAS Perth took the lead and laid a smokescreen for all of them so they could figure out what was going on. And, um... Yeah, it was just a mess, an absolute mess, and that's what led to the loss of, here, I'll, I'll read them all off, USS Houston, uh, USS Edstall, Stewart, Pope, Perry, Pillsbury, Asheville, Canopus, Langley, uh, Pecos, Prince, or, well, Prince of Wales doesn't count because it was already lost, Exeter, Electra, Encounter, Jupiter, Stronghold, Tendos, Thanet, uh, De Reuter, Java, De Shaven Province, Everston Corner, Piatin Van Ghent, uh, Van Nuys, Wit de Wit, uh, the Perth, and HMAS Vampire. So, yeah. That's a lot of their ships. <laughs> like, a lot of their ships. Um, in fact, the Dutch only had two ships that were there that survived. Um, although they did have, like, minesweepers and other auxiliaries. This is really only talking about their, um, like, combat ships that they had and the dutch did have did see awesome success with their um uh submarines like awesome success off the coast of of australia they they sank a ship a day more than a ship day so uh admiral helfreak was called ship day helfreak for a while until he started losing surface ships and then they didn't call him that nickname anymore um for obvious reasons so uh what did the allies do about um uh, well, the Japanese invasion. Well, 
initially they were basically just kind of patrolling around uh, Java and uh, Borneo, and eventually Borneo started falling, so they kind of retreated towards Java, and it was largely just patrols for most of Abda's existence until the very end when stuff started getting really intense. So when stuff started, you know, going south, you had the British who were like, okay, we really don't want to be here anymore because we've kind of already lost... We think that Singapore is impossible to, you know, assault, uh, especially if we have our ships around there. So we really... in the the Dutch East Indies are a lost cause. We don't have enough ships to protect the archipelago. Let's just pull back and consolidate our forces. And largely they were right, except for the fact that Singapore wasn't possible to assault. The Japanese would prove them wrong on that. But... Um, the Dutch were like, no, we have to defend this. This is the last thing we have. The Americans were like, we don't care because we already lost the Philippines. We got nothing here. And the Australians were like, we really don't want the um, Dutch East Indies to fall because that means we're next. And so, yeah, it was kind of a mess. But eventually what ha happened is the um, British, they sent uh, the Exeter, uh, Electra, Encounter, um, yeah, the, the Electra and the Encounter, and one other destroyer, I'm trying to think of his name. Yeah, one of these other destroyers on the list out. And they sorted towards Java. They arrived in Java, and then they sent this kind of like grand, sort of like a grand march, a grand assault that they were going to try. And um, that there, there was rumored that there was a large Japanese contingent, that an invasion force that was coming for Java. And Java was one of the most valuable islands they had. It was the last stronghold with oil there. So, yeah, it was it was getting starting to get pretty bad. And they needed to stop this now. This was like, you know, the, the last chance. It was now or never. So, the, basically, what was left of Abdefloat at the time sorted. So, USS Houston, USS Marblehead, a bunch of the destroyers for the U.S. Navy, US, or HMAS Perth, um, the... Vampire, or all the other ships, were either back in Australia or in, um, like, Singapore and the Indian Ocean. And were not involved in the primary contingent of Abdefloat. And you also had the Dutch were making their last stand, so pretty much everyone was involved. So you got the De Reuter. Um, the Tromp wasn't involved. It was in a different part of the archipelago at the time. Uh, you got the Java, the uh, Evertston, the Courtenaire. I think the Penthine and the Van Get were there. Also, the Wit de Wyth um, and the Van Ness. The, the, pretty much everything was there. So they were um, going to find this, this Japanese force, but they kind of searched the wrong place. And they ended up not really running into each other. So they started turning... They turned around and were about to return to Batavia in uh, Java when they said that uh, scout, Dutch scout planes had found the, um, uh, the invasion force. So... They turned around, turned about, went through the minefield, and started engaging this invasion force at this coordinates, and sure enough, they were there. So they had this uh, large skirmish between the two, and this is when the Japanese were a bit surprised to see them there. I mean, they were a bit surprised to see them at the location which they saw them, but they weren't surprised that they were there in the first place. So they were a bit confused for a few moments, and that's when they should have pressed their advantage, but they didn't. And there proved to be one more opportunity, and they failed to press their advantage, too. Um, there as well. Um, so, essentially what happens here is um, they lose a lot of the Dutch ships. Uh, in fact, they, uh, 
both the De Reuter and the Java are lost in the battle within five minutes of each other. Um, what happens is the Exeter gets damaged heavily and is only able to maintain five knots because one of its boiler rooms was taken out. Um, and so it's largely forced to retreat and they continue pressing a little bit, but, um, they, it, they're not really able to compete with the Japanese. The USS Houston doesn't even have radar. Um, so it's very hard to engage at night and the star shells, uh, that they're firing are silhouetting the Japanese ships, but not well enough for the gunners to get, uh, really accurate shots off. And when I'm talking about star shells, they're shells that these guns fire out that are meant to go purposefully go over and behind the Japanese ships to um, explode and then produce like a very, very bright light that the gunners can see the silhouette of the ship in front of them that they're firing at and hopefully range in on that ship. And they they had managed to score some decent hits on the Japanese who started some fires on the um, the enemy heavy cruisers and it was going decently well, but then the Japanese pressed their other advantage, and that's the Type 93 Long Lance Torpedo. And this was used to devastating effect on the Abdicom. The Abdicom really didn't know the range of the Type 93. The Type 93 was thought to have um, like half the range of what it actually had, and it was thought to be a lot slower than it was. And so they thought they were well out of range, these Type 93s, but then all of a sudden these ships just started exploding because they weren't looking for torpedoes. So that's what majority of the casualties were, was to the Type 93. Most of the Dutch casualties, the, they lost a majority of their destroyers during the battle um, be, to this, um, you know, Type 93 menace. Um, and so they started to realize that they were losing too many ships and the Japanese started pushing. So they started to retreat and... This is about when um, uh, the, this whole confusion happens, the the uh, Exeter gets hit, and everybody starts falling on a line, and it's, it's really starting to fall apart. They lose HMS Electra, they lose um, HMS Encounter, and they're really starting to fall apart. They lay smoke screen and just leave. And this is when the last Type 93s are launched in their fleeing direction, and... Um, so you picture a line of ships, Java's at the end, uh, DeRoyder's at the front, Java just explodes all of a sudden, and it was they found out that it was hit by a Type 93, and um, they said the explosion was so hot on the Java that, like, close to a half mile away on the Houston, they could feel the heat of it. So yeah, they had no chance, Java sinks very quickly, and then five minutes later, the HNLMS DeRoyter, which was, by the way, Carl Duman's flagship and the flagship of the squadron, was hit by another Type 93 to similar results, and um, unfortunately, Carl Duman goes down with the ship. Um, so yeah, this was disaster, losing the two Dutch ships and the flagship. And so that means that uh, Commander Hector Waller of HMAS Perth is now the senior officer in charge, and he orders, let's just get back to Java, let's refuel, and let's get out of here, because this is, this is a lost cause we're not going to be able to defend against the Japanese invasion force. So, yeah. Uh, so they go back to Java, and turns out the Dutch don't want to refuel any other ships other than their own. They say that this fuel is reserved for Dutch ships that are escaping and no one else. Then another communication issue, so they had to sit in a harbor and sort that out because they don't have enough fuel to make it. And they managed to get some fuel, and um, then they're like, okay, what about ammunition? And they're like, ammunition? 
we don't have ammunition here. So these two ships, the the Houston and the Perth and the t- few destroyers that are um, that are left, they they don't um, get any more ammunition. So the the Perth has like twenty salvos left of normal ammunition, and the Houston has like thirty. So not very much, not for a full on engagement. So these uh these destroyers then basically leave them that basically because they. Yeah, they they just left and they go to Australia to, in by splitting their force and hoping that some will make it. Unfortunately, that doesn't really pan out. There's I think USS Parrot and USS Whipple make it out of the Edstall, the Bulmer, the Stewart, the Pope, the Perry, uh, and the Pillsbury. So yeah, the all these are are caught and sunk by, um, by uh the Japanese. One destroyer had its keel blown out underneath it with the um. From the Japanese battleships IGN, like Hei or Hai, it's in World of Warships. It's H I E I. The 14-inch shells just ripped through it. Although it did take them a long time to do that, so it caused the Japanese to revise their targeting uh, practices with the 14-inch guns um, because of how long this meager destroyer lasted in their fire. But uh, some are destroyed, or one destroyer is destroyed and actually captured and serves in. Um, I think it's USS Stewart, right? Yes, USS Stewart is captured in its um, dry dock because it was undergoing repairs at the time of Java being captured. It does actually serve in um, uh, Japanese, uh, you know, service, and it's the only ship ever to um, do that serve under enemy service in, um, I think, any war for the U.S. Navy. Although they did recapture in 1945. Um, yeah, so it, it's a disaster. So what you got in the harbor in uh batavia i think is where they are right now um is you got hmas perth and uss houston and the last remaining dutch ship in the area which is hnlms evertston it's a admiral and class destroyer so what are you going to do at this point we've seen that only destroyers have had success so far in um against the japanese and i i should probably mention that the uh there was a covert assault in the beginning of uh, February where several U.S. Navy destroyers managed to um, sort of elude Japanese patrols and uh, sink several Japanese uh, like ships, uh, uh, merchant vessels, and uh, oilers and things that were sitting in a harbor. I want to say in Borneo, and it eluded the Japanese so much they went off and searched for submarines because they thought that. There was nothing else that could be that that elusive other than a submarine, and this allowed them to get even more kills in the harbor. Eventually, they figured out and chased them away, but um, uh, or no, they, they didn't chase them away. Actually, excuse me, that was a different assault. They, yeah, so they basically slipped away, and didn't you know didn't take any casualties, which was pretty pretty amazing. But that was that was beyond the point right now. We were losing and needed to get out of here. So essentially, they devised a plan. Uh, based on the most recent Dutch and Allied intelligence, is that the Sunda Strait should be clear of Japanese vessels. Um, and the Sunda Strait is the strait in between Java and Sumatra. It's on the west side of Java and the south side of Sumatra. And it should be the shortest route possible out of Java and into the Indian Ocean, to where they could go to Australia in hopes of, uh, you know, kind of regrouping with the U.S. Pacific Fleet and retaking the Dutch East Indies after that. So... How did this work out for them? Well, it did not work out well, because guess who also received intelligence ports that um, there was no warships in the, uh, or no enemy warships in the Sunda Strait? The Japanese. 
So the Japanese thought that their main invasion force should go through the Sunda Strait to attack Java from the west, which would not be an expected side. You would think that they would expect it or expect them to attack from the north because it's the closest way. But no, they were going to attack from the west. So all of a sudden, um, these so the Perth and the Houston set sail. The Everston set sail. I think like five hours later, and so they are going through the Sunda Strait, and it's eerily quiet. It's like a sort of a misty night, and they're through the Sunda Strait, and, uh, you know, they haven't seen anything so far, and that's really strange. They usually see a Japanese, like, patrol aircraft or something like that, but they haven't seen anything. So they're thinking, well, something's coming up. There's no way this ship, or this, this archipelago is infested with Japanese ships. Why are we not seeing anything? And then they see, like, a little silhouette on the horizon. I think it's a thing, single Japanese destroyer. Turns out to be the IGN Fubuki, Tier 6 uh, dis- torpedo destroyer, I think. Yeah, I don't know. A uh, Tier 6 destroyer in World of Warships. And they d- are trying to kind of figure out what it is. They think it's Japanese. They're almost sure it's Japanese. So the Perth opens fire. And the Fubuki is had been trailing them for a while, actually. And they were they were trying to figure out what these ships were because there was not supposed to be anybody in there. There's not supposed to be anybody in the, the Sunda Strait. So as soon as they started opening fire, it instantly clicked to the captain of the um, Fubuki, yes, these are ABDA ships, we need to open fire. And then so Fubuki returns fire, launches torpedoes and things like that. But then, so the, the, they think they're engaging a, a small destroyer, uh, a destroyer, maybe a destroyer flotilla, and sure enough, multiple destroyers from that same location start opening fire, and there's this starts to be an exchange of fire. This is not good, but it's at this point not a big deal because they can try and outrun the destroyers, at least pull them far enough off their assignment that they just give up and turn around. And this hope exists for a few minutes until they see a muzzle flash out front, out towards the off the bows of HMAS Perth and, and Houston, and they're like, "What the heck? There's no Allied ships. We don't we don't think there's an Allied ship out there." Unless well, Thorned Air Destroyers is out there, so they look through the mist. It's another Japanese ship, no more Japanese destroyers. And they're they're kinda confused here. It's like, well, what the heck? We're so we're being trailed by them and they're in front of us? Are we like running alongside one of their convoys? And then ships open up on their port side. And then ships open up on their starboard side. It turns out they're completely surrounded by Japanese ships. Like completely surrounded. They somehow managed to slip inside. A, the, the middle of a Japanese invasion force. And they're completely surrounded with no way out whatsoever. Remember, Perth does only have 20 salvos of ammunition left, and Houston not much more than that. So they know they're at this point they're completely screwed. And the problem is the Japanese are now beginning to spotlight them for all their, you know, friendly ships around. So they're just getting pummeled by... or They're, they're getting lit up by spotlights and then pummeled. And then lit up by spotlights and pummeled. So... They, uh, the uh, the Americans and the Australians quickly devise a strategy. Since there's no aircraft overhead at the moment, they use their 50 caliber anti-aircraft guns to shoot out the spotlights of Japanese ships, to shoot at them so you can break the glass, break the lamp, and then the spotlights obviously shut off, and um, then you won't then they won't be able to spotlight you. Except the Japanese know this. They know the strategy that they're going to be doing this. So what they do is they rotate their spotlights. And what I mean is, so let's say Fubuki turns on a spotlight and then 
the uh, Nachi turns on the spotlight. The Fubuki turns off the spotlight. So, like, you have a circle of continuously, like, appears like flashing spotlights, except the Japanese are turning on just long enough to get the position to turning off. So you, you can't turn your gun around to shoot at the spotlight because it goes off by that time. So it's extremely challenging to nail these spotlights and make sure they don't turn on again. And it was just every gun on the ship was firing. They, they turned... Uh, anti-aircraft guns into anti-ship guns and it was just this all-out brawl i don't know if you guys have seen many like shark documentaries or anything but you got like i don't know a carcass or like an injured ant injured uh, mammal or sea mammal or like a dolphin or a small whale or something like that that's uh, just like limping in, or some direction and these sharks are just swimming around it like waiting for it to just die or you know get injured enough that they can they can just easily kill it that's what this was the Japanese ships were circling around these two allied ships, just waiting for them to be damaged enough that they could sneak in for the kill. And they're slowly getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And eventually, this is some of the most ferocious night action that we will see in all of World War II at sea. Um, it's so close that a 50 caliber machine gun is an effective anti-ship weapon. And an anti-personnel weapon on the decks of the other ships, and these, the both the Houston and the Perth take multiple torpedoes in this, and it's just like typical action movie. Like you could easily make this battle an action movie and not have to change a single thing to keep it entertaining. It it's insane, or like not maybe not like entertaining, but like you know like heart pounding and gut wrenching and everything. It was, it was both spectacular and horrific at the same time. It was so close, in fact. That you could shout to the uh, the crew of the enemy ship. You could hear their shouts and their orders that the captains are giving them over, like the PA system and things. You, that it was that close, and it was to the point where the guns on the Houston could not could not depress enough to get the closest enemy ships. That's how close it was. You didn't need gun rangefinders. You could just point and shoot, and. Unfortunately, there was just too many enemy ships, and the, um, the it was so close range here, and there were so many Japanese ships circling around them that you guys might have put two, to get two together. When you launch torpedoes, they don't stop, right? Or they don't really have a set range. They kind of have, like, well, they have a range of a range. You know, like, they can stop from, for example, maybe 12 kilometers or 12 and a half kilometers or 12 kilometers and 13 kilometers. Like, between that range, they'll stop somewhere in there. Um... And you'll also know that Mr. Torpedo, once he leaves the launcher, he's nobody's friend. Um, and that principle very much came to life in, in this battle because the Japanese fired torpedoes at their own ships. Because when, let's say you're on the port side of USS Houston. As you're on the port side of USS Houston, you launch your torpedoes. And let's say USS Houston does a hard turn to port, splits the gap in the torpedoes, and they all miss. Well, what's on the other side of that? That's that. That's um your own ships, and there's a there's a concept for this phenomenon, and I forget what it's called. But um, I mean, I'm not referring to collateral damage. Obviously, this is an instance of collateral damage. But there's a concept where you know you have to be mindful of like of what you're shooting at and what's behind it if your shots miss. And the um, well, well, let's let's just say the Japanese were not following this principle. They actually managed to sink some of their own landing ships because remember, this is a landing party, and they're so close to the Java coast that these escorting warships just kind of tangle with the Houston as these landing ships go ashore, and they sink several Japanese transports. Um, the 
you know, the the transports that were sunk actually um or actually there are four japanese transports sunk in a minesweeper all by friendly torpedoes and as these torpedoes are hitting these transports they're like what the heck the does Houston have torpedoes? And they check their documents to realize Houston does not have torpedoes. And the Perth's torpedoes are out of range. So they realize <laughs> that they're shooting at their own ships. And they actually, the interesting thing is in official Japanese documents, the Houston is credited with the, the kills on all four transports and the minesweeper. It does not give credit to the kills, or does not give reason for the the sinkings to Japanese uh, friendly fire because that would be dishonorable under the Japanese Bushido Code, which is like you know the samurai code. It's more honorable to be killed by a enemy samurai than it is your own, obviously. So they were not willing to admit that they were wrong, and they credited the Houston with all those kills. And I believe it's still given credit uh, to this day, actually. Um, so yes, uh, it was. Just an awful battle, and, and we we know what happened. The the both the Perth and the Houston are sunk. The Perth first uh, takes torpedoes, knocks off, um, knocks out boiler rooms, and eventually it slows down. It's really unable to maneuver. So then the Houston or then the Perth simply kind of stops, and um, it just gets pounded and pounded and pounded by Japanese shells. And they said that the, the rhythm of Japanese shells hitting it at towards the end was almost constant. So Admiral Hector Waller, or uh, Captain Hector Waller, um, gives the order, the regretful order to abandon ship, which, believe it or not, was a bit of a shock to some of the crew members on the, the Perth because they thought they were about to make it out, but they, they weren't. There was no way they were getting out of so They abandoned ship, and just um, the order was given to keep the Perth going so that it would give the um, uh, crew members, the surviving crew members, time to uh, escape the ship and get away from the ship before it sank and so they wouldn't be sucked under and um also if the japanese came looking for them they could they might have a chance of making it to the java before um the japanese were able to find them in the water and uh, you know you don't want to be a japanese prisoner you'd rather live in the jungle <laughs> than be a japanese prisoner um so yeah that that was the end of the perth and the houston faced a similar fate it survived uh I think a few hours longer, um, just constantly getting hit with torpedo after torpedo, and it, the um, eventually the abandoned ship order was given by um, by Captain Rooks of the per, of the uh, Houston, which was one of um, FDR's favorite uh, commanders, and remember FDR. This was FDR's favorite ship, actually. Um, his, he uses a personal yacht a lot, and you can read about all this in uh, *Ship of Ghosts* by uh, James D. Hornfisher. Highly recommend it. It's like watch. It's basically like watching a war movie. It's it's an amazing book. To highly recommend it. But uh, some of the the ABDA issues are detailed in um, uh, U.S. in the *Ship of Ghosts*, and obviously the demise of the Houston's also detailed in there, and then a lot more things that I'm not going to go over today. But what's kind of sad is uh, Captain Rooks g gave this order, right? And he's climbing down the ladder from the armored conning tower. And um, all of a sudden, a Japanese heavy cruiser shell hits amidships, like right where his the end of his ladder is or near it. And the shrapnel ex from the exploding shell hits him in the, the chest and the back of the neck and uh, part of his head. And unfortunately, he dies a few minutes later. And that's a... Uh, one of FDR's favorite captains doesn't make it through the battle. Um, Waller is killed by, or Hector Waller is killed by 
a shell that hits the Perth's bridge directly, and it's a low-caliber shell, so it didn't penetrate through the bridge deck, because remember, HMAS Perth has an open-top bridge. It doesn't penetrate through the lower deck in the bridge. It just kind of explodes on the bridge and kills everyone on the bridge and all the command staff, so that's why it was hard for the HMAS Perth to, um, you know, have like some semblance of coordination. And when the uh, B turret crew was given the order to abandon the ship, they obviously came out the doors in the back, the armor doors on the back of the turret. And as they're walking out, an eight inch shell hits directly in the back of the turret and kills most of them. So if they would have just stayed in there for a few seconds longer, it would have bounced harmlessly off the back of the turret or uh, shattered on the back of the turret and not killed anyone. But yeah, so just um, uh, inter- interesting coincidences here and uh, very sad ones at that. Um, so you know, we they lost uh, 696 members of the crew of the Houston, 375 from the Perth. Uh, captains of both vessels were obviously killed, um, and actually Rooks was uh, posthumously uh, awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions in trying to save his crew members. Um, and yeah, and uh, the crew of the Japanese cruiser Makuma suffered six killed and eleven wounded as a result of a fire and damage caused by uh, hits from U.S. USS Houston, which did knock out her torpedo tubes momentary uh, for a little bit. It was like a legit World of Warships battle, was what this was. Um, and a direct shell hit to the bridge of the, sh- the shore Shira- Shirayuki killed one crew member and wounded eleven more. And the Huriakazi suffered suffered several hits to her bridge, engine room, and rudder, killing three and wounding more than fifteen others. Uh, I believe the Shirayuki um, was one of the um, destroyers that was kind of leading the charge into finish off the Houston and the Perth. Um, also, it's estimated that at least a few hundred uh, Japanese soldiers died, uh, like army soldiers. Um, on the transports, because many of them could swim, because they're not used to being in the Navy, and um, including uh, the General Imamura's uh, flagship was sunk in that battle as well as a result of friendly fire. Uh, it was obviously resulted in loss of pretty much... It was This was the end of Abdicom here. The last major ships were, were lost, and you think, what about the Exeter? Well, the Exeter was repaired in... Um, in a different port in java and then sunk like the following day or something like that they were caught um by some japanese aircraft and then surface ships closed in around them and they finished them off along with uh, the remaining uh british destroyers there um like i said the u.s destroyers were caught and sunk uh parrot and whipple managed to escape a dutch minesweeper uh it's the abraham christiansen i believe that's how you pronounce it uh managed to escape by disguising itself as a island and then moving by night. So it'd park itself very, very close to an island, like within a few feet of it, and sit there the whole day as the Japanese went by, like near major shipping lanes, and then it would move at night very slowly. And then they'd stop in the next island. And they managed to survive that way, but it's by creativity. But this was a, imagine this is an order. There, there's a part in Ship of Ghosts, and if you like read this on other sources, where it's just like, like an Order 66 moment. Like, remember the scene from uh, Revenge of the Sith where they're all the, it's just a like a montage of all the Jedi being killed over sad music. That's basically what this is. Um, the Everettston, which was just a few hours behind the Perth and the Houston, um, saw all the shell tracers and intense shell fire and noise and things like that from this battle, and they kind of surmised what had happened. So they um, turned immediately due north, and they were going to hug the coast of Sumatra. But... Um, after the Houston and the Perth were sunk, uh, the heavy cruisers Murakumu and Shirakumo 
uh, went looking for more escaping allied ships because they put two and two together and realized that they were abandoning their posts because they knew it was hopeless. And they, they wanted to keep as many from escaping as possible. And uh, they managed uh, to find the Everston. Um, and the Everston was... They, they they tried desperately to escape. They um, th- As soon as they saw the Everston, they immediately illuminated it with the searchlights and the, searchlights and the took her under intense fire. Uh, the Everston tried to evade by turning uh, further west and, and then like south and trying to like kind of... Well, sort of do like a naval juke. Um, and, but the... Instead of running into the heavy cruisers, it ran into the Japanese destroyers, became under intense fire from them. So it escaped under a smokescreen. And it temporarily eluded the Japanese behind the smokescreen, except eventually the smokescreen dissipated and the ship was still on fire. So it was very easy to see in the night. And um, unfortunately, they tried to ground the Everston on a coral reef because they realized that the fire was starting to reach uh, one of the magazines. So they tried to um, ground it on a coral reef near shore and just basically run into the jungle of Sumatra and hope to, you know, like, find, reach some allies or find a place where they could stay for, like, the next few years as the war raged on, but they were unable to, and they were cap- captured by the Japanese. So, yes, this is uh, Abdicon, and this was the well, first major attempt at cooperation between, um, uh, like, allies. First, like, integrated cooperation between allies in... Um, in World War uh, Two, so you know, in World War Two, and actually, kind of ever, because if you look at all the wars previous to this, it was people think there were allies, but you know, they kind of acted separately, right? They they were fighting for a common goal, but they they acted separately, and this was the first attempt at creating more of a unified force, and um, it failed miserably, but it did provide major you know experience and learning for the allies, and they did learn from it. They standardized signals. They've uh, improved communication lines between um, the forces. They tried to meet everyone's, that provide compromises that met everyone's goals and agendas. So it it allowed, um, you know, the, the, lots of learning. And it, we should be glad that ABDA happened because this was a, a much smaller scale failure than if this would have happened, say, in the island hopping campaign, because that would have been a disaster. We may have lost the war if we weren't able to communicate. If we communicated this poorly, we may have actually lost the war against the Japanese. They may have been able to finish this off quickly enough so that um, they could, you know, win the war of attrition, uh, or make it not a war of attrition and win the war. But that did not happen for them. So that is it for this episode. Uh, provided a little bit of background on the HMAS Perth. We'll go just a little bit into the history of HMAS Perth uh, tomorrow, just a little bit deeper, like, you know, specifications and battles before um, the Battle of the Sunda Strait, and uh, then we shall go into World of Warships uh, for HMAS Perth. So unless something comes up, that's my plan for uh, next time on Rank Amateur. If you have... Questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, please feel free to email me, rankamateurpodcast at gmail.com. Please go check out my merch sites. They're always linked in the description. I would like to thank you for listening, and until next time, captains.